I am here right now with visiting uh, Professor. She's here for a special talk. She's the Associate Professor in the Department of Anthropology, Professor Xiling Cheng from the Chinese University of Hong Kong. She's published on subjects of sexuality, human rights, and anti-trafficking policies, uh, transnational migration, and activism as well. Her first book, On the Move for Love, Migrant Entertainers and the U.S. Military in South Korea, received the Distinguished Book Award of the Sexuality Sections of the American Sociology, Sociological excuse me, Association in 2012. And her current project is on asylum seekers and refugees in Hong Kong. And she co-founded a 2016 um, band called Talents Displaced, made up of asylum seekers, refugees, and ethnic minorities in Hong Kong. That's really interesting. Um, so, wow, with that mouthful, let's talk to Ceiling, who's here in Hawaii, um, because she's here actually for a talk, um, which will be done by the time I air this. Uh, it is called Suicided in Hong Kong from a subway exit to a makeshift shrine. Well, welcome, Ceiling. Hi, thank you, Crystal. That was a very long introduction. Well, you know, this is the easy thing of reading off text, so I don't have to remember anything. Um, but really, I mean, this is a loaded introduction because that that's that's the whole premise of, I guess, of who you are. You are all over the place. Yes, I am. That's a good thing. Where do we want to begin? Let's start with you. Um, tell us about who you are and why you are interested in migration, sexuality, and human rights. Hi, uh, I'm an anthropologist, and I started doing research in South Korea um, with an interest on sexuality and nationalism. And my idea back then, you know, when you wrote your very long PhD proposal, was to examine the difference between women who worked in U.S. military camp towns with those who worked in uh, red light districts in other parts of South Korea because according to my initial reading there is a strong uh, nationalist interpretation of women's sexuality so in post-Korean war there have been a lot of American soldiers in the on the Korean peninsula to defend the world from communism and so many of them were in Korea on a hardship tour because technically Korea is still at war and so they couldn't many of them couldn't bring their spouses and families so they were mostly men alone for at least one year in Korea and therefore all these clubs where women provide company and also other forms of services uh, boomed up in in post-war Korea because you know it was a war-torn country so pe women started working there even though they made a lot of money for their families they supported a lot of their families they were stigmatized for having intimate relations with American soldiers and so so they were like women who were excluded they were one documentary actually referred to them as the women outside, and oh, there's actually a do documentary yes. about them. Wait, yes. these are uh, what nationality are we talking yeah. about? Korean women. Korean women. women. Okay. So, so my my initial uh, objective was to study the Korean women, but when I arrived in 1997, and I s it. It started to dawn on me that, wait, there are not just Korean women working here. There are women from the Philippines. There are women from ex-Soviet states like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and so on. And I, I became very intrigued. So, uh, and together with a Korean researcher who was doing her master's, we started doing research on these um, foreign women. And our focus then became uh, the Filipinas who worked in the camp towns. So I didn't do a comparison of Korean women in two different sites, uh, but instead I did a research on these foreign women who were there for a year, usually. And as we were doing our research, suddenly this, I, this whole narrative of sex trafficking or trafficking emerged. And in fact, we were asked to do research for a local NGO on the status of trafficked women. And 
You know, back then the idea of trafficked women was that they would be locked up, they would be chained, they would be enslaved, and so on. But these are women. These were women who were like walking down the streets, going shopping, going to eat at restaurants, and so on. I mean, sometimes with their American GI boyfriends, sometimes by themselves, and so it was very perplexing to me back then. To to you know, on one hand, I read about all these trafficking discourses. And yet, I saw the women, and so um, my research for 19 months in the in in the U.S. military camp towns, meaning the areas around the bases, U.S. military bases that serve mainly the U.S. soldiers, with shops, restaurants, but also clubs, um, uh, allowed me to engage with the you know, the trafficking discourse in a more critical way. That I I think my my conclusion was that you know it is unhelpful to frame them as victims of trafficking, uh, partly because trafficking is a criminal justice framework, meaning you aim to go after the bad guys, you arrest them, you put them in jail, and for the women you save them, you send them home, then everything was gonna be all right. It's not. It's not. The women. Do not want to go home. They want the conditions of their workplace, their rights as workers be respected, but they don't want to be sent home. So, and also, you know, you have to look at it uh, in a more global context. Why would women risk going overseas to an unknown country for an uncertain? Uh, Prospect in their job um, is because in their own country there are very little opportunities, and so they would save money. They would sell their TV set. They would sell their gold jewelry in order to go overseas, in order to make a better life and future, not just for themselves, sometimes for their families as well. It seems not uncommon still today, though. I mean, you're talking about trafficking. Um, I don't know if you want to elaborate a little bit on the kind of <sighs> the parallels of, of, of all this trafficking going on today. Um, and also because you're talking about Filipino women and you know living in Hong Kong where the Filipino women tend to be domestic workers and you look at a lot of countries where South Asian or Southeast Asian women tend to be associated with either sex work or something um, labor oriented. Uh, so there's this discriminating, already existing discriminating view on um, Asian women of dark skin. Is that something that you also explore? Is that part of this um, examination? Um, it depends on which part of the world you're talking mm. about. Yeah. Um, so in in Asia, I think there's a tendency uh, to think about you know the Filipinas who have been. Um, no, let let me start with the global context. Globally, there's a tendency to conflate human trafficking with trafficking into forced prostitution. Whereas by UN definition, there's a UN protocol on trafficking in persons and is really about the intention to exploit someone's labor through the use of force or fraud or threats of physical force and so it's not limited to sex work right mm. so you could be trafficked into factory work you could mm. be trafficked into tomato picking you could be trafficked into um, other forms of labor and sex work is just one site of many possible sites for trafficking but somehow in the popular imagination in a lot of policymakers imagination it is only about sex work mm -hmm. so when um, anti-trafficking initiatives were introduced after 2000 when the UN protocol was uh, ratified by many countries, the main focus was on sex work. So it became the case that anti-trafficking work became anti-prostitution work. And this was one, sorry, Korea was one such site. 
And so because I followed the Filipinas that I studied, I also went back to the Philippines with them. I kept in touch with them for the years after. I'm still in touch with them, with some of them. So when Korea introduced this anti-trafficking legislation, which in effect is anti-prostitution legislation, they made it much harder for the women to go to Korea. So well, especially Filipinas. Uh, and so suddenly their one exit was closed. And so what do they do? Do they just stay at home? Do they just, you know, be good women and not go anywhere? Of course not. They looked for other ways. Mm-hmm. So they went to other places, including Malaysia, mm-hmm. in which the conditions were even more precarious than in Korea. And so this is, so if the anti-trafficking framework was about the well-being or the rights of the women, then why would they be pushing them into more precarious routes of migration, right? If the concern is about the, the rights of these migrants, men, women, children, then you should be looking at labor rights, at migrant rights, rather than to say, oh, they're traffic victims, let's rescue them and get them out of here. Okay, continuing on talking about um, this fascinating research about uh, Filipinas in Korea during post-war time, correct? Well, is in the late 1980s, 1990s, sorry. Yeah, so my research was about 1990s because back then, um, so in post-war time, it was Korean women working in these clubs. But as you know, South Korea became one of the biggest um, economies in the world, and then there were much better jobs for Korean women um, than in the U.S. military camp towns. So they started to import cheap labor from other parts of the world, including the Philippines and ex-Soviet states. How did they market them to get over there? How do they market them? Yeah, so how did the Filipino community know about this place? What well, you, you hire recruiters, right? You hire recruiters who recruiters who are in the Philippines and they say, oh, you want to migrate. Back then, usually they would migrate to, you know, um, the Middle East as m- m- domestic workers or Hong Kong or Taiwan as domestic workers. But they would go to Japan to be entertainers or hostesses. Right. And so suddenly there's this new option. Korea. So people started to to come. Um, um, Possibly the recruitment fees were slightly less and so the women started to come to this new place called Korea um, in the late 1990s. Okay. Did they they integrate with the community or did they have interracial relationships? I mean obviously they're catering to the men who are there but where do they cross the line in terms of work slash relationship slash sexual, you know, all that? That's a great question. Um, they So their job is to entertain the GIs, uh, and their income depended on the number of drinks that they could sell, okay. and there are also services that they could provide. Uh, so if you... If you pay for a drink, the women get like one fifth of of the money. Uh, so if a ten dollar beer, the woman get two dollars. So you need to sell a lot of drinks. Some club owners set up a quota. You have to sell five hundred drinks a week. So in order to buy more, to sell more drinks, uh, sometimes you can say, "Oh, let's go into the VIP room." So it's just called a VIP room. It's not like glamorous with chandeliers. It's just a room. Okay. But um, So you can go into the room. Whatever happens in that room for that 20 minutes... It stays in that room. stays in that room and it's up to the two of you to decide. Okay. Yeah. It So it could be some sexual act. It could just be talking. Okay. Uh, it depends on so this. There's no rules? There's no rule. No, you pay for the four drinks to go into a VIP room. Uh, for 20 minutes. Can't do much in 20 minutes, but then again, you can. <laughs> yeah, with 20 minutes, uh, it depends on, well... Uh, right? No, uh, usually, you know, at most, it's usually a sa- uh, a, a, a hand job or a, a blow job. Um, usually not full, full intercourse, but of course, th- they could do it if they wanted. Right. Um, 
and then if you some club some clubs would also allow you to take a woman out of the club and it's called a bar fine in some parts of Southeast Asia it's the same thing yeah. the bar fine meaning you are taking the woman away from her workplace and therefore you're fined for it so it's a few hundred dollars um, and then you can take the woman out sometimes for a short time or the whole night then it costs more and for GIs who are paid on the 1st and the 15th of each month you can imagine that the cost of a bar fine yeah. shifts right <laughs> so on the 1st and the 15th you get the most <laughs> money <laughs> and then it just you know it <laughs> goes down <laughs> so um, and many women in order to make more money try to have a romantic relationship or to create a romantic relationship with the GIs so you try to make them think that oh um, you are such a good-looking man I like you will you come back and so on and and you know many of the GIs were young men like they could be as young as 17 mm. from Missouri who has never seen the ocean right and suddenly he was surrounded by all these Asian women fawning over him mm -hmm. and and telling him that he is like the most handsome guy around and is is easy to fall into the trap and also because as an American soldier you you feel that you are in Asia you are there to save the world you are there to save and protect these people so the Filipinas are also good at you know picking on that and sometimes would say you know my mother is sick my brother needs to go to school and so on sometimes they're true sometimes they're not in order to get money out of the GIs um, but there are real love stories there are real love stories and they there are marriages between the GIs and the women and and then they move to the US sometimes the GIs buy them out of the club completely they pay a lot of money to buy the contract and then they rent a room and then they stay together and then they got married and they have children yeah 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 um, I wanted to ask you because now so so with romance you know the fact that you said that how sometimes they use this kind of concept um, of the savior mentality it's almost like they're they're using their sexuality and their ideas of romancing someone as a you know as power right whether like you say they are trying to manipulate them or if they genuinely fall in love it's to their advantage like you know I think in a lot of times we like to look at it as the white man saving the Asian you know oppressed victim but yet what you're saying is that these women really had their own agency to kind of um, take uh, what they could with that given opportunity yes of course I, I recognize that these women have agency and romance is one way for them to exercise this agency and romance is also the only way for some of them to exercise this agency given that they their club owner is trying to you know push them to sell more drinks get more money from the GIs mm -hmm. given that their rights as migrants were totally not protected they are always afraid of the immigration officers coming because they got an entertainer visa to enter Korea and they're supposed to be on stage singing and dancing mm -hmm. not you know hanging out with customers so they could be you know found violating immigration law and be deported so they don't want that and so their rights as workers and as migrants were not protected so how do they find a way to protect themselves to find a boyfriend mm -hmm. right or to find several boyfriends mm -hmm. who are there to protect her but of course their precarity their structural precarity remained and if they it turned out that okay they finally found a guy who could buy her contract and marry her that's like the most ideal mm -hmm. scenario it didn't happen to many people so you say that you f you kept in touch you still keep in touch with some of them which I think is wonderful and so you've kind of built this relationship of trust and friendship um, so have you 
do you feel like you're obligated to expose more on their side of what really happens behind closed doors? You know, what this whole process of this, this lack of real examination from the woman's perspective, um, whether you see the exploitation or whether you see how the structure kind of controls and enables this whole system to be kind of mapped out, do you think that, what I'm trying to say is, you're friends with these women now, um, and how do you, how does that change the way your research is because you see them not as a victim? <laughs> uh, I. As an anthropologist, I think we are committed to understand the people we are trying to study and to understand their perspectives, their way of um, seeing things, of doing things. And I was brought up a Christian. I even taught Sunday school, so <laughs> you could imagine uh, my shock when I went to do field work and I saw them, you know, you know, this is a club and <laughs> and they were interacting with different men and they were using me as an excuse to meet with different men, you know. I'm I'm hanging out with Ceiling when in fact they were meeting another boyfriend and so on. And so I I witnessed all that but I tried very hard to understand why they were doing all these things and also when I went back to the Philippines with them, uh, I went back with one of them to the Philippines and she brought two big suitcases of gifts like shampoos and candies and soap back you know i it 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 puzzled me you know why would you bring these things but they were prized um commodities especially foreign made ones it's not that they couldn't get it in the philippines but because they're brought in from overseas they were valued and so we we arrived at the airport at like 11 the whole family rented a van on her money of course to to pick us up and we had a three-hour drive back to their hometown and then the moment we went into their place they just basically ransacked her <laughs> luggage to to take everything out of the, the luggages and then the next two weeks she had to give basically give money to almost everyone in the family to repair the tricycle, to repair the fridge, to buy back the Joe jewelry that uh, in the pawn shop, and so uh, they had a, a lot to shoulder. Yeah. And you understand why they needed to stay there, uh, stay in Korea to make all this money, and then they almost dread going back. Uh, well, they do they dread going back. They returned to the Philippines with a lot of power right. because of the money they have. Yeah. And they get respect that way. But then as the money started to wear out, yeah. then, okay, the phone line was cut again. Um, <laughs> she is starting to have to sell her jewelry again. Then, you know, then things become difficult. Interesting how things work in cycles. Continuing my conversation with Celine Cheng here, who's on. Actually, we should get to the topic. I mean, she's here to talk about like, <laughs> well, the topic of your talk at UH is okay. about the Hong Kong protest situation. But before that, I am obsessed with topics of sexuality, and it sounds like you are too in a strange way. I mean, um, of course, yours is much more academic than mine. Way. Yes, yours is more professional for me. I just love talking <laughs> about it. But with your experience um, and, and you being a Chinese female growing up, Christian, you said. I don't even know if that is part of the the reason behind your. So how are you? I mean, you know, I like I like focusing on the concept of unruly women. And do you think does your family think you're an unruly woman? And your exploration into sexuality, how does your family feel about that? And how does that um, shape you as a person? Wow. Um, well, I stopped being a Christian <laughs> in my twenties. And of course, I'm the only one in my uh, family, in my mother's family, who's not Christian. So that's so I'm the black sheep. Yeah. I'm the black sheep, and I still remember. And and I have two pastors of in my family. Oh, yeah, wow. they okay. each one of them runs their own church and so on. And so you can imagine. <laughs> 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 not only that. 
not only that I left the church, I also talk about sex. So it was like horrendous for them that I that that I do these things, and these things, like just talking, yeah, yeah, talking about sex and just bringing sex to the dinner table is just not appropriate. I remember I did it one time just deliberately to upset them. So yeah, I'm unruly. I confess. But how does it work because of Chinese culture and the tabooness of sexuality and talk? You know, I had a talk show in Hong Kong years ago, and at that time. Yeah, it was a big taboo thing. They thought I was trying to raise my ratings by talking about sexuality because nobody did. And because you talk about it, people s- tend to associate you with the experience, or or you know they they can't separate the aspect of talking about something as doing it or ex- your experience. Right. Um, I think being Chinese may have something to do with it, but I think it's important to point out that it's being Hong Kong Chinese. That made you more conservative. Uh, I think maybe 15, 20 years ago, there was a research comparing sexual attitudes of people, young people in uh, in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and mainland China. Mm-hmm. And Hong Kong w- people were the most yeah. conservative. And this has a lot to do with British colonialism, I think. Mm-hmm. Right? All of us. I don't know if you did, but I I went to a Christian school, a Catholic school. Sorry. I went to a Catholic school. Most people went to missionary schools. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine what the missionaries taught you or did not teach you <laughs> about sexuality. Mm-hmm. I still remember, you know, when I was in Form 6, which was around when I was 17, the the sex education we got was an, a video on abortion or how yeah. horrible abortion was. I still remember that we watched it before lunchtime and I said, I'm never gonna eat spaghetti bolognese again. Oh, <laughs> was it that graphic? <laughs> yes, it was very graphic. <laughs> and so, so is, so is about the Chinese traditions of not talking basically about anything intimate in yeah. public, and then the colonial um, taboo on anything sexual. Yeah. Right, and we have had almost zero art education. There's no education about, about, you know, this is art, you know, nudes are about the beauty of human bodies. We never had any exposure to that. The colonial government did not think that art education was important. Mm. So, so th- I think that's why I th- uh, Hong Kong people are the most conservative in sexual attitudes. Um, I just I just remembered one of uh, the topics on my show. I guess you know even because because of it was taboo and we nobody talked about it. This became a form of sex education, if you will. Um, we had a topic on women on top, and um, because it was a live show, people called in and to talk about the position of a woman on top was something so new shockingly new to the Hong Kong audience like one woman came in uh, called in and said that she had thanked the show for informing her of this position because she'd been married for over 10 years and never had a climax and she didn't know that she could be on top to achieve this and it was such an eye-opener for me to know the the lack of education like you say on um, basic sexuality between partners Um, and this isn't I mean it was you know, a little while ago, but I don't think things have really changed much. I don't know. Do you think Hong Kong has changed in terms of its addressing sexuality? I just taught a class uh, before I came to Hawaii on pornography, and my students said most of them use pornography as their main source uh, of sex education. Yeah. Right. So, so I don't think it's exclusive to Hong Kong. Mm. Uh, it's very hard to find the sex positive. Uh, sort of education you would need to allow you to talk about it freely, to explore sexuality as you would. They are still very much bounded by these ideas that women should be passive, Mm. women should not be proactive uh, in exploring your sexuality. So none on top because that shows... (laughs) I hope they're doing more of that. than your time but I don't know I didn't do a survey the, the, when did you run the show About 20 years ago 20 yeah. years ago so I hope yeah. university students now are, are you know oh, more okay. educated than when I was a, a university student okay yeah but 
you know, the image of women and sexuality with particularly Chinese women is always still very binary. You know, you've got the, the, the um, precious, submissive one that you mentioned, and then you've got the whore, right? You've got the prostitute version, the sexual version of the Asian seductiveness. Do you think that's changed at all in literature and in representation and in how uh, Chinese women specifically, you know, see themselves and their sexual roles? So again, I don't know if this is exclusive to Chinese because my research area um, used to be Korea mm -hmm. and I, I see a more, an even stronger version of the wife whore divide in Korea. And, uh, and of course, this binary shapes a lot of our understanding of women. And it's not just for women, but the men also think in such a way that, you know, I could have sex with all these other women, but my wife should be a virgin uh, or that kind of thing. But I think across the years that I've been teaching this subject, I do see that the men, are, the male students are slightly more open. Maybe it's self-selective in my class because I teach a class on body, love and emotions. And so that the men are not as insistent <laughs> that their wives should be virgins. Well, <laughs> I guess maybe virginity is not so much an issue nowadays, but there is still that little bit of that kind of maybe unwritten rule that you're not, you're, you're person that you decide to um, s commit to for a long-term relationship shouldn't be the one who's out there, you know, sleeping with every other man. I, I, there's still that stigma and, and not a stigma but it's like even here in the states you know you can go out and you, you go partying you go travel to Asia with your boys your men's men's what do you call that excursion when they go for golf trips and all that stuff I don't know if things have really changed if, if sexuality is something that I mean look at with Trump in, in, in power here where it almost enables like it's okay for people to talk about women and their vaginas mm -hmm. you know it's just it's pretty screwed up so in the recent uh, movements, protest movements in Hong Kong, mm. any woman, especially young woman, who stepped forward, who became sort of more a more outspoken person, would immediately be shamed for her past behavior. The slut shaming mm -hmm. would be immediately, you know, going into operation, like. Who was her boyfriend? What did he? What did he do? What did she do? And and you know, she, someone even photo opt uh, one of the young political activists' photos to show that she was wearing a T-shirt without bras, so her her nipples were sort of you could half see them. And and what was the point of it? Right? That is to say, oh, these women are sexually loose mm -hmm. and therefore they are not reliable um, activists or they're not even moral individuals. So you should just ignore them. So that is operating so much both today, 2019, and in the umbrella movement. Mm. Is, uh, is horrid, but it's still going on. And of course, the, the the reverse is also going, right? Um, that you know, all this slut shaming originates from this as patriarchal assumption that male ownership of female sexuality is a kind of right and responsibility. So, as we know from many of our foul language, is usually about your mother, <laughs> right? And if <laughs> so, the the best way to insult a man is to sexually violate the women that he thought he should be protecting. And in the current movement, there's this really huge divide between the protesters and the police because they were the main enforcers of spectacular violence. Right, we're not talking about structural violence. We're talking about like, spectacular physical violence, the beating, the, the swearing, the humiliation. Everything is caught on, well, most things were caught live on videos and photos. 
and also there have been accusations of sexual violence and and sexual abuse um, in detention. So how do protesters respond? There's a lot of anger, there's a lot of frustration and they created these songs that would be humiliating the police and there would be a chant that's, that said oh you are just doing your overtime OT you while you are doing your OT your wife is engaged in 3P 3P meaning well there's a there's like a chant okay. that they will engage 3P meaning you are in a threesome and is I mean it, it is the same right assumption that if you are a man, if you can't control your woman, then you're not a real man. I need to repeat that and <laughs> and hate it. Man is not a man if he can't control his woman. So in the world and kind of how things run, you know, mostly patriarchal societies, right? We have this that belief or a reinforcement of it because of the structure we live in, right? How do we dismantle that? Can we can we talk about that? And can we talk about why? <laughs> Remind me, please. This this talk that you're giving here, um, you titled it "Suicided." I know you're going to be talking about the you know the subway station as a shrine, which I think is a really interesting concept of mourning whatever it is we're, you know talking about the Hong Kong protests but let's reverse it back a little bit about this why are we all stuck in this patriarchal system that's kind of um, guiding us into this way of seeing things and how does this um, work us into this Hong Kong protest like this whole concept of Hong Kong's position with China China being the controller of Hong Kong right is this political movement right now in Hong Kong and I think a lot of people here don't really quite understand it because they don't see it and feel it like you do obviously because you're from Hong Kong how do we get them to understand what this is all about and why this has to do with the structure we live in so I well I do believe that there are structural changes that need to be done before our ideas uh, could be changed but then there also need to be adequate change in attitudes before the structures could be changed so this is the the cycle that that we have to get out of so uh, in many places still men make more money than women for the same job men are the CEOs or in managerial classes than than women men are in the political arenas as leaders and policy makers more than women and so these things are have to change in order to provide an environment in which women feel empowered to make choices and to assert their autonomy um, to make to take some tragic examples like domestic violence many women have to put up with domestic violence um, partly because if they leave then they they don't have enough money to raise themselves and the kids and so they're they're stuck in the relationship but there's also the ideology that oh you're a bad mother you you broke up the family mm. and so on so you should sacrifice yourself right this idea that women should sacrifice themselves in order to be a good mother is something that is very peculiar but it it comes from the notion that if women's is women's born natural responsibility their their duty to be good mothers and therefore sacrifice and then putting up with a bad relationship uh, to putting up with abuse then suddenly would be sort of whipped into this package that they have to deal with so so the ideology and the material conditions for women to assert their autonomy need to be changed before women can really try to be equal with men. 
but how how are we going to be able to do that if you know you just cited that example of this one woman uh, protester who you know they kind of through social media cameras have focused on her sexuality so we're already sucked into again this whole male gaze of how that's always the reason for something and the cause or the you know uh, so how you know how yeah it's it's like we're reinforcing this whole system right well it takes not just one woman but a group of women and their and their allies to fight against this so there are some people who are gathering uh, some of these women who experience this kind of slut shaming and organize themselves and say you know this is th this is slut shaming this is an attack on me because of my gender I'm not going to take this so rather than hide away and cry in shame they step forth and fight against this label and you need more women to be able to step forth and fight against the the terror the terrorizing of women with this kind of tactics so and a woman very few women can do it alone they need solidarity they need a group there to support them and I think I think that's one you know in this particular scenario this is how how it's gonna happen so for example one student in our university stepped forth and and talked to the vice chancellor in public saying that I was um, I experienced sexual violence and I know many who experience sexual violence under police detention. Yeah. And that took a lot of guts mm. to say that. And of course, you know, on the internet, suddenly there were all these stories of her being uh, a slut and all the boyfriends he had, she has had and all these things came out. And, but she stood firm and said, I'm not afraid. And, and that really inspired a lot of people to come forth and they reached out to her and now just yesterday it was made known that a woman filed um, a complaint against the police for who, who raped her yeah I saw that in the news I mean this is pretty hard news I mean are we talking about rape with from a police officer I mean this is this is this is going beyond just sexual violence. This is this is a very politically charged action, right? I mean, how is this all going to play out? Oh, I I do not know. Uh, it for, for one thing is of course fueling the discontent that is already boiling in Hong Kong with all the death of protesters and so on. On the other hand, we'll see how the police deals with this case because she was one of the very courageous ones who actually came forth and filed a complaint. There are others. There are others who are not able to file a complaint because of the anxiety, because they also, some of them have been threatened mm -hmm. by other people, you know, for, for not, for, so, th so that they wouldn't come forth. So would the police deal with it in a fair manner? Is because they got DNA sample. This woman actually had an abortion. She wow. got pregnant oh. from the rape, Jeez. and she had an abortion. Whoa. And so is 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 he? <laughs> I don't even have the word to describe how angry I feel. Yeah. Um, but I really admire her for for filing a complaint, and I hope others have the courage to do that too. Oh, okay. Let's, let's let's wrap this. That's a very disturbing thought, and I want to keep that because that is really what we're dealing with. Um, this talk, suicided in Hong Kong. Why why did you title it suicided? And um, the concept of a subway exit as a makeshift shrine is very performative. Can you talk a little bit about that? So suicided is a term that's actually from mainland Chinese uh, netizens. They created it to describe a lot of suspicious deaths of human rights activists or lawyers or labor rights activists. What's the word in Chinese? Beijisa. Okay. And uh, in 2012, when one of the ex-labor um, activists, uh, uh, Lei Wangyong, 
was found dead in his hospital. He he had a a loop of string around his neck and hung hang to the the window railing, the the curtain railing, but his feet were on the ground. And he was reported to have uh, committed suicide. And people said, "How is this possible? This mm. is mm. being suicided." So this word used to describe something that only happened on the mainland, but in the last few months. Uh, we have been witnessing escalating police brutality, you know, smashing heads, smashing teeth, and a lot of others that were not, you know, visible, but happened under detention. And then, on August thirty-first, inside Prince Edward MTR subway station, um, after major protests on Hong Kong Island. Riot police suddenly rushed into a train, Prince Edward station, into a train, and just randomly attacked the passengers. They caught that on video. Yes, yeah. uh, with batons and pepper spray, and and they were really violent in the way they pinned down some of the protesters. And that night, they closed the police closed the station for two hours and refused to let rescue team in. Refused to let journalists in, and they only allowed one person to go in and assess the level of injuries, and he reported ten injuries, including three three code red, meaning serious injuries. And instead of bringing those injured people out from the exit of that station, they transported them to another station to send them out. And also, only seven injured people were sent to hospital. So people have been asking, where did the other three go?、Mm. And also, there were no code red.、Mm. And the police didn't come on time, right?、The、no, the police. The police were there to beat them up. No,、okay. they, they were there. They oh, were oh, there at the beginning. That's why it happened.、Oh. But the 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 that that was July twenty first、okay, when the gangsters two hundred. And something gangsters beat people up in a subway station.、Okay. But this one was August thirty-first,、okay. and then the next day, people went to ask for CCTV footage.、Mm. The MTR company refused to give them. You know, crowds were gathered. They were they were dispersed by the police, and then people started to say, "People died. People died in the station." That's why the police were so secretive. They didn't let journalists. They didn't let the rescue team in. And then the number of the Of injured people suddenly fell from ten to seven. Where did the three go? People died. So this is what people believe in. And so suddenly people turned the, that subway exit into a kind of shrine. They were get, bringing white flowers to put on the railing. A woman started to bring this paper offering, kaitin,、yeah. that you throw around for the dead.、Yeah. And then more and more people came to join her, and then they started folding these paper offerings of the gold, gold-plated money. I I don't know what you call it. So you you fold them for the dead. So there was a big a group like which station was this? Prince Edward、oh. Station. So they would fold it under a flyover,、um, and and like twenty feet away from the station, and they started setting up a shrine. People brought food offering,、mm, wow. like、uh, drinks and food and snacks and tasio and and they lined them up really well. And then their paper offerings have to be burned every night, and they would burn after about six p.m. for the dead. So I joined this group folding this money. I I'm I was brought up a Christian, so I didn't know how to do these things. So <laughs> I sat there. I tore many pieces of paper. But <laughs> as I folded, I talked to them, and some people, you know, one person actually said she could see the ghosts, and it was, you know, one girl and four boys, and they were bleeding,、oh、and a- as you may know, in sort of Chinese, I think this Buddhist、yeah. cosmology, if you had an unjust death, your spirits. 
would not leave this world. So these people are burning all this paper money for the dead so that they could have enough to go to the next world. Because one day we were folding and we had all these like huge garbage bags of paper money to be burned and then they moved them to the burning place and then suddenly one said it's not enough I was shocked I said how do you know it's not enough yeah. and they said because by burning all this money here and doing all this offering here all the hungry ghosts from around would also come so they are sharing their food and the money so they need to burn more and and I and then the intention is actually to feed all the other hungry ghosts so that they will also help these people to revenge their death. This is really okay, so the concept of spirituality you know it's a very interesting one because here in the West people don't see they don't they don't live with these these ideas that you know this afterworld and the ghosts uh, coming around you know some people do but what you're implying here is something there's it's a whole nother um, approach to this protest it's through the eyes of the spiritual world which I think is really really interesting that there's a whole nother layer of this that goes beyond the um, obvious uh, police and and protester clashes and the social social media reality right the spiritual reality is really, really a really interesting area. And also it reinforces the suicided narrative that they believe that people died inside that station on August 31st. They also put up put tombstones, like not real ones, but like um, I think they were foam board tombstones saying that heroes of August 31st. And then he another tombstone was heroes of San Oklang Detention Center. That was the detention center that was used for a lot of interrogation. It was very far away near the mainland border and people believed that people died there. And then there were subsequent deaths of this 15-year-old swimmer who was found naked in yeah. the ocean. Her picture was then put up on the shrine as well. Okay. And two nights ago, last night, you know, with the recent death of the 22-year-old university student, uh, there was also mourning around Prince Edward Station, that exit, because it's now this shrine, right? It's a continuous funeral. And, you know, anthropologically, it's, it's considered a, a liminal space. And the people who gathered there, they are joined in a communitas. You know, all these people who are folding paper offering, they, don't, they didn't know each other before. And anyone who wanted to join to fold could join. I, that's how I joined them. And, and they would engage in different discussions about the protests, about the police. You know, they felt that why was this exit locked up? They must feel guilty. That's why they locked it up. Something bad must have happened. You know, and, and how more and more people, you know, they, they go there. I mean, people go there and just stand to pay respect to the dead. They lit an incense, they fold some paper offering, they brought some food. And so they're on this collective ritual of memorializing the unknown dead of the movement. And now we have the known dead. Um, and this is part of the resistance, right? Thank you, Ceiling. I think you need to um, get to your talk. <laughs> And that's uh, part of the resistance of structure again. So we got to follow some things, I guess, in life. But really appreciate um, your sharing this very complex issue and bringing a different type. I didn't expect this, this, the spirituality as, as, a, as a, an area to explore. And once you pose that, it's like it really just shifts the thinking. And I've got a lot of thinking to do later. So appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you.